Please get out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Psalms chapter 3. My name is Aaron Barnett. I am the middle school director at Grace Fellowship Church, and it's a joy to get to be here with you this morning. We are in a new series in the book of Psalms. And in the book of Psalms contains some of the most beautiful poems and song, lyrics, history, prophecies, pictures of the coming king, prayers of praise and worship, songs of repentance and cries for mercy. Lots and lots of you and other people, even those of, uh, in the world that aren't Christians, find the Psalms to be beautiful. We can see Psalms verses quoted on inspirational plaques and cards and on balloons and get well soon things. The reason I think a lot of people love the Psalms though is because there are Psalms of thanksgiving. There are Psalms of praise. There are Psalms of wisdom. There are Psalms of worship. And there are Psalms of lament. For all seasons of life, we can go to the scripture and find truth that satisfies our souls. This morning, we are going to be looking at the Psalms of Lament, specifically Psalms 3. Cries to God in the midst of pain and heartache. Cries for help when one is feeling outnumbered, overwhelmed, and without direction. It struck me as I was driving to church this morning. It was a beautiful morning. And for whatever reason, I'm, I'm preaching this morning and I see a man on a motorcycle who's going somewhere. I see a car who's going a different direction. I look up in the sky, there's a plane going who knows where. I don't know where you're going this morning or where you're coming from or where your home is. But we're all people and we have all kinds of circumstances in our lives. And they change all the time. This morning... Looking at a psalm of lament and crying out to God and what that means for us is good to do regardless of what circumstance you're in because life is hard and if it's not now, it will be because God promises that it's going to. So quickly, before we dive into Psalm chapter 3, I want to give you some context. If you look, depending on what copy of the scripture you have, mine says the title of the sermon is Save Me, O My God. And just under that, it tells us who the author is, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. You can go and look at the entire story of David fleeing from his son Absalom in 2 Samuel 15 to 19, several chapters long. It's a neat story. There's a lot to it. Bottom line though is this, David is king and his son, his own son, is out among the kingdom raising up an army to come against his father to kick him out. It's mind-blowing. And even further, the context of this psalm is Daniel learning of this news and fleeing for his life from the city. He's running. Let's dive in and read. Verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory And the lifter of my head, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let's pray. Lord, I am truly, truly humbled. And I pray for the rest of the people here that they would be as well, that we have an opportunity to come and hear from you. Lord, would your word sink deep into our hearts and minds by the power of the Spirit. Draw us to yourself, reveal yourself to us, and help us see how we can trust you, how we can look to you, and how we can cry out to you. Lord, and more than that, would you reveal to us the promises of who you are and all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my sermon this morning is, Do You Ever Feel Outnumbered? And I find it odd that this sermon falls so closely on the calendar to middle school and high school camp, which is the only context I have for fleeing for my life. And I'm outnumbered. Those of you here, the majority of us, will never find ourselves in a situation where you're running for your life. So if you're looking for an area to plug in, the middle school and high school is always taking volunteers. (laughs) Let me know. But really... David is fleeing for his life. We see that in movies. We maybe read about that in the news with natural disasters. But it's hard to wrap our minds around. But this morning, I want to look at something that is not seen. I want to look at the war that is spiritual here. And the title of this sermon, Do You Ever Feel Outnumbered? I want you guys to consider a few things before you check out and say, I don't have that many enemies that are coming at me or wanting to attack me. Consider consider this. Have you ever been distressed, stuck in a catch-22 situation, lose-lose scenario, doesn't seem like there's any way to win? Have you ever been ashamed, seen your sin, and felt its weight on your heart and your mind so that it clouds your vision in every area of your life? Have your memories of things you've said and done been pressing on you to come to the forefront of your mind to get you to, to, to be embarrassed Have you ever been flustered, anxious, or stressed? No need to answer that one. The sheer number of things on your plate and your to-do list, the number of things that you have to get done for school, for work, or at home, projects you've got going on. Have the life circumstances caused you to sigh deeply? Have you ever been struck with the realization of how much control you don't have? You ever felt outnumbered by the, by the dizzying amount of decision, decisions that are in front of you to make and you don't have the mental capacity or the knowledge maybe even to make these decisions but somehow people are still coming to you needing you to make them? Maybe you've, maybe you've felt outnumbered simply because there's so many pressures coming on you and you feel like there's just not enough of you to handle it all. Have you ever felt outnumbered by the emotions running through your body? Emotions that get you to think things that you shouldn't, to say things you shouldn't, to do things you shouldn't, watch things, go places, drink things, smoke things, buy things. You just can't seem to get control of all of them. You're working on one and God's convicting you of one and as soon as you start to get your hands on it, another one pops up and you move over there and then this one starts coming up along with six others. Make no mistake, whether it's externally being outnumbered by people and coworkers and family, 
or it's internally and it's sin and it's temptations, we are outnumbered in this life and we have an enemy who is seeking to take us down. The very nature of, of a plate being full and stressing out, if I've got a plate and there's one thing on it, I'm not going to freak out about because it, it fits on the plate. The reason I freak out is when there's more things than can fit on the plate and things are falling off and I can't catch them and keep them on. And perhaps maybe you've got two plates you're trying to manage. And I know some of you who are juggling plates. There's been seasons in my life that I have and I freak out because we can't manage it all. You can't. You can try. Many have. See what happens. When it rains, it pours. It seems that Medical expenses always come at the worst times. Medical emergencies come at the worst times. We have other things going on with work, with family. When it rains, it pours. Spurgeon said it best. He said, troubles always come in flocks. Sorrow hath a numerous family. How true that is. Things all seem to pile on at the worst time. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. There is no mistake we have numbers coming at us relentlessly, believers in this world. God has called us to run a race. In Hebrews 12, he says, You are to run with endurance the race that is set before you. How are we supposed to do that with these numbers, though, that are keeping us from from running the direction we're supposed to go? It's saying, stop, take a break. Go here, take this shortcut. Turn around, you can't do it. It's too hard. I have an easier way. How do we do it? Romans, or Romans, Hebrews 12 goes on to say, we run this race with endurance, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And that right there, everybody listen to me. That right there is the heart of the spiritual war that rages around us in our culture, in our cities, in our nation, and in the entire world. That is the heart. And that is the heart that was there from the very beginning when the devil said to Eve in the garden, did God really say? Verse two in Psalms three. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation from him and God. God's not with you. Did he really say? Did he promise? Is this what's best for you? It certainly doesn't feel like it. Turn to something else. Don't obey God. Do what is best in your eyes. You make the decisions. A wonderful truth though, if you're a believer and you're here, the devil cannot take our salvation. Somebody say amen. But I'll tell you, he sure is going to try to rob you of your joy and hope and peace. And he does that by attacking his plan, his power, and his purposes. Don't trust that God's in control. Don't trust that God has a plan. Don't trust that God is working this for your good. William Gurnall says of the phrase, there is no salvation for him in God from verse 2. He says this. When the believer questions the power of God or his interest in it, his joy gusheth out as blood out of a broken vein. This verse is a sore stab indeed. 
Christians, we're supposed to have joy, right? We know that. We know that's the right answer. But what oftentimes is it in, in this comfortable world that we live in, this culture that we, we live in, our circumstances? We have all that we need. We have more than we need. But it doesn't always go that way. Some of you know that this morning, and you're in hard situations. But I want to I just pause real quick and say, if you don't know this war that I'm talking about against flesh and sin, the spiritual war that rages with the values of the Christian and God's word and the values of our culture and they, they clash, if you don't see that, I wanna challenge you. You need to consider which direction you're running. Don't be deceived thinking that you're running the right direction when you're not. And that's based on where your faith is at, what it's placed in. We're gonna talk about that more. No doubt, I have no doubt in my mind, David, as he, as he recorded here the Psalms and the story of him fleeing from his son, no doubt he was tempted to believe God wasn't going to save him. He was running for his life from his son. God, how, how could you? Numbers and odds were against him, furthermore. But David saw the temptation to doubt, to fear, to stress, to worry, and look to himself and his circumstances, but that's not what he did. Look in verse three and four. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord. And he answered me from his holy hill. And that brings me to my first point. There's three things that David, I see doing here in the midst of of hard, difficult, sorrowful, heavy, emotional, painful situations. Three things. And the first of that, the first point is this, cry out to God. Why do we need to cry out to God? Why? I'll tell you why. Because it's an act of faith. It's an act of dependence and trust in God. Why is crying out an act of trust and faith? When we are utterly outnumbered in whatever that looks like for you, when one is outnumbered and things are attacking you, getting you to question God's character and your care for the Lord, what do you lean to? Do you lean into God or do you lean into other things? It's an act of faith because we respond based on that which is not seen rather than that which is seen. Which many of you know in 1 Corinthians it talks about we live by faith, not by how hard that is. And that's what this is talking about. It's very difficult to act on that which we can't see, especially especially when what we can see seems to be telling us contrary than what we're trying to tell ourselves is true. God isn't there. God doesn't care. God, why would you do this? This sickness, this is hard. This is painful. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to move. Where's my next paycheck going to come from? God, are you taking care of me or not? It doesn't feel like you're there and you're doing what you've promised to do. How David had every opportunity to respond based on his circumstances and what he could see. But instead, he cried out to the Lord. This verse is a picture of the Holy Spirit 
actively giving grace, divine grace and mercy in a time of need, based in not what is felt and seen, but that which is true. There's this false reality that people live in, that what we see, what we feel, what we touch, the job we have, the money we have that we can spend, that's what's real. The reality is this, God sits in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And he's going to use whatever means necessary to do that. And sometimes it looks differently than we can see. I want to now turn and look beyond the example of David here in Psalm 3. That is a striking example in this case. Turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to quickly look at it. There's other accounts of this in the gospel. Matthew 26 is one that give more details but Luke 22 is a good, good picture of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Where Jesus, in Matthew 26, if we were to go there, we don't have time. It, it says that Jesus, before he's on his way to the cross, Jesus is feeling burdened and heavy and sorrowful. And he gets to the garden, follow along in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus, he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Jesus cried out to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord and said, God, I don't want to do this. Father, is there another way? Oh, how, how wonderful that is to be able to relate with the Son of God that he prayed and asked for circumstances to change. Have any of you done that before? And this is really hard, but it's true. And Jesus is a further example of how to respond when God doesn't change our circumstances. Your will, not mine. Jesus cried out. Do you see the act of faith and dependence that is? The humility that sets aside what one thinks is best and says, God, what you think is best. I so often, I don't even have, I don't even have the words to articulate. When I pray sometimes, I have what I think the outcome is best. In my mind, whatever the scenario, whatever the situation, the person, the family, the need, it's like I'm thinking I know what's best and that we need money. I never even considered to stop and, and say, God, what do you, th-? maybe it's not money, maybe you're doing something much bigger than I can see and it's not money that's needed here. How often do I stop and say, God, your will, not mine. God, how would you want me to pray here? How do you want me to trust you here? Lord, do what you want and help me to endure regardless of what that looks like. How often do you pray and ask God for something and respond in a way that's not appropriate when you don't get what you want? It's hard. Instead of saying, Lord, take this hardship away, that we should say, Lord, your will, help me to endure it through it. Our culture, and I think that this, this has intercepted and found its way into our midst. Our culture, a very prevalent mindset is, you got this, you can do this. 
Muster up your strength. You got this. You can make this happen. Get it done. We can't get it done if we're believers. We have to cry out to God and rely on him. We will fall and crash and burn out every time if we're relying on ourselves in our strength, in our knowledge, in our wisdom. You see the ridiculousness here that is so close to our culture that it's just off enough that it gets us to be looking at something other than what we should be looking to. Instead of crying out to God, we run to other things, sometimes good things. But that's what we go to. We don't cry out to God. That's not our first, our first response. And as I was preparing, this, this struck me. Almost every time I came to it in my, in my notes and I was praying and, and thinking. And it's a very simple truth that many of you at any time, if you heard this, would be like, oh yeah, that's true. But consider just for a moment yourself. This is convicting to me every time. If I'm, if I'm in, a, in, a, in a pool and I'm, I'm struggling, I'm getting a cramp, I can't get to the bottom, I'm not swimming well. Who do I cry out to for help? I guarantee every time I'm going to cry out to the lifeguard who's got a life preserver sitting on their, their, their lap and they're ready to throw it to me or dive in and come get me. I'm not going to cry out to somebody who I don't know if they can help me or not. I'm going to go to the person who I think can help me. And the truth is this. The only reason one would cry out to God in trouble is if they knew he was the one who could help. And that brings me to my second point. We have to know God's character. We have to know that he is the one who can help. We have to know that he is the one who has all power and authority. We have to know God's character and place our confidence in it. Verse three and four. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. A shield, what is a shield for? Protection. David knew the story of God's people. He knew God's faithfulness. He knew God's holiness. And he was banking on it. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory. Not my glory. Lord, you are the one. You are the one who lifts my head. There are many things that will bring somebody low. Cause somebody to lay lay their head down. But only in the midst of, of troubles and sorrows that are so heavy and difficult is it divine Grace that allows one to lift up your head and look to the skies and to the heavens. Verse four, I cried aloud. Some of you need to cry aloud. Use your own voice and you need to hear yourself and the things you're thinking and it's very revealing at times. Did I just say that? Yep, I did. That's pretty ridiculous. I hope nobody ever hears me saying that. But even if it is ridiculous, God doesn't care. He wants you to be honest. He wants you to come to him with your cares and worries and fears. We should not be afraid of life or death and the numerous troubles all around when we can rejoice in the truth that God hears our prayers. He's my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. If we only knew God more, we would run to him faster without hesitation. Right? Jerry Bridges is one of my favorite authors and he wrote a book, Trusting God. It's an older book. It's very good. But he says this, and it is so sweet and it is true. It is true. It's biblical. God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power 
to bring it about. Oh, how wonderful that is to consider the character of God and the wisdom that he has and he knows what's best and he has all power to make it happen. And if we knew his promises better, the sooner we could lay our head down and rest knowing that God's omniscient, omnipotent, sovereign will is being played out. And it's great to read that book sitting on my back patio when life is all hunky-dory and I got my iced tea and my feet are propped up. There's no humidity. I'm in the shade. It's just perfect. I'm like, man, that quote is so good versus when I'm on my knees, I'm under a bridge. I don't have any money. I don't know where I'm going to stay the night. I don't know where to turn in another job application to. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It is divine grace and faith that allows us to hold to those truths in the midst of suffering. Do you know what you have to do in order to get that? Cry out for it. Cry out for it. And remind yourself of the truths that you know. That's what David did here. No doubt he was tempted to worry about everything that was happening. But he knew it was true. But instead of staying focused on everything that was happening all around, the waves that were crashing, he reminded himself and he cried out and he said, God, you are my shield. You are the one who sustains me. He probably said those things to himself, reminding him of of those things so he didn't forget them. Many of you know God. You know these truths from Scripture. Remind yourself. Remind yourself again and again and again. When we pray and cry out to God the same way David did, looking at God, it's a discipline. It's a discipline. It's hard. It's a choice. But do you know it's a tool that we can use to force things out of our mind that are circumstantial, that we're thinking. We can push those out by replacing them with things that are good and true and right. It's like, oh yeah, that's great, but what about the things we don't know? What do we do when we don't have answers from Scripture about, it's like, oh yeah, God's gonna give me a job tomorrow. Yeah, I don't know that. What's your faith in? Do you trust God? There's a lot of unknowns. We have to look to Christ, who is the example of us, of crying out to God and saying, God, your will, not mine. This is so hard. Lord, please help. And God will help. Prayer is good preparation for sleep. Verse five, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I want to talk now a little bit about sleep or lack thereof. Stress and anxiety seem to be running rampant in our culture. In the secular world, psychologists, they don't know what to do with it. I took a class in college and the entire textbook was like two and a half inches thick. I still have it because it was such an interesting class. The psychology of stress. I have no idea how powerful stress is is on on a person's body and mind and strength. Secular people don't know what to do with it though. What causes people to lose sleep? What causes people to have panic attacks? What causes people to have a tight chest? And I'm not just talking about chemical imbalances which are a thing and medicine is wonderful and can help. And I'm not talking about precursors to a heart attack which are which are tragic real things that's not what i'm talking about what causes you to lose sleep 
What causes you to, to maybe get close to having a panic attack? Have a tight chest, shortness of breath. Start to tap your foot a little bit faster than you normally do. I think anxiety and stress in our culture and where the world misses it is because stress and anxiety are not the product of things around us and our circumstances that are changing all the time. I think stress and anxiety are the product of something else inside you and that thing is doubt. I think it's misplaced faith. Misplaced faith in things that are seen rather than things that are unseen. This war is hard and it's a battle but you've got to fight to remind yourself of the things that are true. What does the Spirit enable us to do? To be more than conquerors. Rather than looking at everything that is changing around us, the Spirit enables us to be more than conquerors. How? By revealing God's word to us that never changes. So if you're down here in the low of lows or the high of highs, the truth is truth no matter what. And we have to speak to ourselves all the time. How quick we are to forget it when things are going well. And as soon as our emotions fail us and stab us in the back, what do you run to? It's an indicator of what your faith is in. And it reveals a little bit about what's going on in your heart. The Spirit alone helps us rest. Something else I deal with a lot, parents, those of you here who have students, I deal with this often. And it looks a little bit different, but I think, I think it's not just parents who deal with this. What if my kid doesn't go to private school? They're gonna turn out like this and this and this. Or homeschool or public school. Or whatever that is. What if they don't go to college? Or maybe they're turning out a way right now differently than you expected. And it's like, oh, it's because I didn't do this and this and this. Or because I did it this way and we should have sent them to this school. God has plans and you cannot thwart them. He has ordained and orchestrated. And you're stressing over things that are not true. You're worrying over things that are not true. James 1, verses 2 through 4 says, many of, you, many of you know this verse, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials. You like how I'm smiling when I say that? Isn't that wonderful? Count it joy when you're struggling. Go get them. How do you count it joy when you're struggling with trials of all kinds? Do you know how? The verse goes on to say, count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials, for we know that the testing of our faith produces patience. And patience, let it have its full work in you that you will be complete, lacking nothing. You fight it by saying, what do you know? What do we know? God is perfecting us, completing us, and making us more like Christ. Romans 8, 28, one of my favorite verses. And we know that God is working all things for our good and his glory. We know, my question for you today is, what do you know? What do you know? Not just what is the right answer because we're sitting here at church. In the middle of the week, when everything hits the fan and you're struggling, what do you know to be true? God gives us a joy and a strength in the midst of trials when we bank on what we know. David knew the history of God's people. He knew God's character. I'm not asking, what do you know that you don't know? 
I don't know if the house is going to sell. I don't know if I passed the test. I studied. I took it. I'm hoping I'm going to find out in a couple weeks. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Am I going to get that next paycheck? Am I going to get the raise? I don't know. The I don't knows of this world will consume you. There's something that believers have that non-believers don't. And that is truth. What we know, we can replace the I don't knows with that will give us confidence to weather them regardless of how we feel and how things appear to be. This is not, this is not easy though. I don't, I don't want to pretend that this is a fix all for whatever situation you might find yourself in this morning or sometime in the future. It's hard. It is hard to deal with worry, fear, doubt, and stress. We have to replace the things we don't know with the things we do. And when we don't know, we have to trust God. We have to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And we have to trust that he cares for us. And we have to trust that he knows what's best for us. I must make a point here to talk about obedience and a good conscience. The way we have peace and joy is by abiding in God's love. And John 14 tells us how we abide in God's love. You know how? We obey God's commands. Not in a legalistic way. That's what makes us a Christian is we obey. It's like, no, 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 no. Once you've tasted the sweet goodness that is found at the foot of the cross and being covered in Jesus' blood, that you are no longer condemned, but God looks down on you and sees his perfect son on your behalf. Even after that, we are not perfect. And there's feelings that God gives us, the fruit of the Spirit in us, joy, peace, hope, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But if we're not obeying God's commands, conviction will tear you apart. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you here today, I imagine it's the very thing God has called you to do and obey that scares you and leads you to sleepless nights. Again, I would challenge you. What are you banking on? What you know or don't know? To look back at the example of Christ. He did not. He did not want to do it. God, if there's another way, have this cup pass. Please. And God said, there is no other way. John Piper There's a quote in your bulletin that is very helpful. John Piper articulates things in such a fashion is is so clear in my mind. I hope it is. But he wrote this article on the accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And follow along as I read this. Before the angel came to strengthen him, Jesus prayed that the cup be removed. Strengthening him for what? Presumably to do what he had to do. In other words, the angel was God's response to Jesus' first prayer. The angel bears God's message that there is no other way, but I will help you. Do not turn from your mission now in spite of the terrifying prospect. I will help you. Here is my angel to strengthen you. Jesus in the garden knew God's character And he knew that God's will was best. And he knew that to obey God was best. But it still was hard. He was burdened by it. God helped him and sustained him. God sustained David. God sustained Christ. And he will sustain you. He promises to. 
It might not be an angel of the Lord to help you, but listen to me right now. We don't need an angel. God has given us somebody much more powerful than an angel who lives inside of you, who will illuminate and teach you what God's word says, and he will help you see clearly if you would but cry out and ask his spirit. And another example I'm just going to briefly touch on for the sake of time. It's one of my favorites. The book of Daniel. And regardless of circumstances you find yourself in, it's hard. It's emotional. It's painful. Or maybe it's downright scary. Maybe the obedience that God is calling you to is going to cause repercussions that are scary. I'm going to lose my job. I cheated on on my my timesheet. But I got to go say something. I might lose my job. Pay might get docked. There's scary consequences for obedience sometimes. And in the book of Daniel chapter 3, we can read the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are serving under the king Nebuchadnezzar who builds a golden image and he says, everyone will bow down and worship this golden image when the music plays. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down. It only takes a little bit of time before they're ratted out and the king brings them before himself. And he says, he says, hey, if you're ready when the music plays, you're gonna bow down and you're gonna worship. But if you don't, I'm gonna throw you into this furnace. And then do you know what he said to him? Go look it up at some point. He says to him, and what God is going to save you then? Sounds similar to Psalms where they're saying of David's soul, there is no salvation for you and God. But do you know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this gives me goosebumps. Just, it's like a, out of a movie. Just, just sheer, bold, courageous faith in the face of a fiery death. Do you know what they said? They said, King, we have no need to answer you. Our God can save us from this fiery furnace if he wants to. And he's gonna deliver us out of, out of your hands. But you know what? If he doesn't save us, we still are going to obey because he is greater than this God that you say you have created. And we're going to obey. In life or in death, it doesn't matter, king. We will be delivered. You don't understand. Our faith goes beyond this fiery furnace. You can cast us in there. It doesn't matter. Back to verse six of Psalms three. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people, David says. They have set themselves against me all around. It's not just they've set themselves against me. All around, I'm surrounded. He says, I won't be afraid. How could David say that? How could David say, I will not be afraid? He was repentant and seeking to honor and obey the Lord. David knew that no matter what happened, God was in control. Life or death David made himself content with the Lord's will and not his own. In a very, very striking similarity in 2 Samuel, which is where the, which is where the passage, uh, the context of Psalm 3 is, we see a, a response that David had that was very similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 2 Samuel 15 to 19. I'm going to sum it up again for the sake of time. I'm going quick. I think it's in your bulletin. They're leaving and fleeing the city. And, and the Ark of the Covenant, a guy, Zadok, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant. And David says, no, take it back into the city. If God decides, I will come back. 
to see its resting place in, in the presence of God. But if he doesn't, but if I don't make it back, let God do to me what seems best to him. In the face of death, David was fleeing and trusted God completely regardless of the outcomes of what David wanted, which I'm sure was to come back and to maintain his status as king. He said, let God do what seems best to him. I trust God. Oh, what we should learn from the psalmist that we can look out into the unknown and say, let him do to me what seems best to him. What does seem good to him? What does seem good to God? That he has adopted us through Christ. He has given us his spirit to help teach, convict, and lead. He's given us his word. He has seen fit to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's seen fit to conform us into the image of Jesus. And he has seen fit to reveal to us that the victory is already won and secured through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. It doesn't matter what they say. They're a toothless lion. All of their shouts and cries are in vain and based in a world that is passing. My confidence is lying in God who transcends everything that I can see. So I'm going to cry out even louder than the people who are shouting, your God isn't going to save you. And you know what he says? Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. And that is point number three this morning. We have to remind ourselves, you have to remind yourself, the victory is already won. In life or death, it doesn't matter. God will carry out justice on all the enemies of God. He will. And he will make us more like Christ. And one day, one day, he will take us home. But it's not yet. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The natural progression of faith in the heart, soul, mind, and strength of a person climaxes at the doctrine of salvation. How often do you consider salvation, your salvation? We are prone to wander. Those of you who know, we're prone to wander. We're prone to forget, and I said it earlier, but the devil wants you to forget. The devil wants you to look at the crashing waves all around. He doesn't want you to walk on water. We've got to stay focused on Christ and on God and who he is and what he's commanded us to do, and that is to run and to lay aside every weight and sin and thing that ensnares us, keeping us from running the direction we're supposed to be going. We've got to know this and we've got to know what God calls us to do and in the midst of trials and suffering where we don't know, we've got to fall on our knees and we've got to cry and say, God help, your will, not mine. First, we can, we can cry out to God and say salvation belongs to the Lord because our, our biggest problem is taken care of. Our sin problem. 
We, we need to remind ourselves of it. Secondly, we can say salvation belongs to the Lord because of his power, sovereignty, and justice. In his perfect timing, he will right every wrong. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more sickness, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. It's gonna happen, people. It's coming. But it's not yet. Thirdly, we can say salvation belongs to the Lord because he is the one who opens blind eyes. He is the one who calls people to himself. He is the one who gives his spirit. He is the one who will complete, perfect, and one day bring us home to glory. Don't put more responsibility on yourself and more weight on yourself and the things you say or don't say or do or don't do. Yes, we're called to say and to speak and to have boldness and we need to pray for that to know what to say, when to say it, how to say it, who to say it to and to speak truth. But don't you dare think to yourself because you didn't speak, they're not gonna be saved. God is the one who saved. He is the one who was ordained before the foundations of the earth that we should come to the knowledge of the revelation of who Christ is and what he has done. We have to be faithful to obey, to cry out to God, to trust him even in the midst when it is so hard. And I know it's hard. And I hope that I'm not being insensitive because life is hard and I know many of you here today are struggling with things that are hard. But in the midst of it, there is joy and peace that you can have if you would but cry out to God and rest in his character and who he is. And pray and cry out and say, God, give me an understanding of who you are, more of what you're doing. And lastly, I have another C.H. Spurgeon quote that is fantastic before we sing. Before we sing one more song and remind ourselves of the truths that we know. Listen. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Psalm 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Thy blessing is upon thy chosen, thy blood-bought, thine everlasting beloved people. Selah. Lift up your hearts and pause and meditate upon this doctrine. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Divine, discriminating, distinguishing, eternal, infinite, immutable love is a subject for constant adoration. Pause my soul at this Selah and consider thine own interest in the salvation of God. And if by humble faith thou art enabled to see Jesus as thine by his own free gift of himself to thee, if this greatest of all blessings be upon thee, rise up and sing.